If you don't understand Israel, you can't understand Jesus. Hello and welcome everyone to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley and I am here today with a super special guest. I love it. Dr. Italy himself, uh, Marcelino D'Ambrosio. We have him. He is a professor over at Catholic Distance University and, and bonus feature, he is the father to Marisa, the uh, producer of the show. So welcome to the show. Mike, it is a pleasure to be on the show, but I got to ask you, should I call you Mike or should I call you Gomer? What do you prefer here? You know what's funny? People ask me that all the time. I don't care. Uh, my mom is still mad at me for people calling me Gomer. She reminds me all the time, did I name you Michael or did I name you Gomer? But I'm like, I don't know. It sells. So you can, you can call me Mike. We'll pretend like uh, I'm an adult today. You can call me Mike. All right, right. Well, yeah. you can call me Dr. Italy, or you can call me Marcellino, either one. March- Whatever you prefer. Marcellino. I love that. I love Yeah, like that. the month of March with Alino at the end. <laughs> and, and I just have to mention, i got to throw this plug in here, Mike. Marcellino D'Ambrosio VI was just born in Dallas. Oh, that's so, awesome. So uh, we, got, we got six in a row. So, we're, you know, we're trying to keep the tradition <laughs> alive here. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, I have, I've met. A lot of your family. I have gone to Dallas. I do a lot of stuff at Prince of Peace in Plano and St. Francis in uh, Vasisi and Grapevine and stuff. And I've uh, had the great joy of of knowing uh, your children, actually, for, for quite a while now. Um, it's good fun. Good fun. You got a great family. We do have fun. That's that's for sure. We, we're, we're a lively bunch. <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, when we were talking about possible guests to have, while uh, my regular co-host Dave um, Van Vickel, while he is uh, dealing with his family issues that have recently come up, is um, Marisa reached out and she said, "You know, I have a handful of people," and she recommended you and Jeff and Doctor Edward Shree because you're doing this wonderful new virtual pilgrimage of the Holy Land. And um, so she, we were talking about it and different things, and she sent me an advanced copy of the book. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life that you wrote to kind of coincide with these beautiful on-the-scene video locations. And I have to tell you, now I studied in undergrad and graduate at Franciscan. I'm a nerd for this stuff. But your summary of scholarship in just the introduction alone is worth the price of the book. Like this, it was just... it. Uh, to me, I feel like it's such a perfect opening chapter, opening introduction for people who are like, yeah, but can I trust what the gospel say? So I, w- I just want to come out the gate and say, I know I said that to you in an email, but I'm so excited this exists. Even just that introduction exists and is out there. Hey, thanks a lot, Mike. You know, we we uh, we thought about this a little bit. You know, um, gosh, most of our audience in the study are committed Catholics. They don't need a whole lot of convincing that they can trust the New Testament. But you know what? Uh, We did a little survey, and a lot of people, when they were asked, if we did a series on Jesus, what would you want us to cover? And one of the top responses was, what can historians and and secular history tell us about Jesus? So there's a hunger and a desire just to know that, uh, not necessarily because, you know, you you have to make a decision about your faith, but you want to be able to understand it and explain it to other people. And we really wanted this book, Mike, to be something that could go way beyond 
the core of people who would actually do this the whole study. We wanted it to be an evangelistic tool. So we didn't want to presuppose that people were absolutely convinced about the inspiration of Scripture, et cetera, why we have four Gospels. We, we wanted to try to set that tone in the introduction, set the stage, so that people who are not 100% sure could have a, a reason to believe that what we're doing makes sense and is in accord with common sense and reason, which is something that the Catholic faith is. Uh, you can't prove everything by reason, but— Everything is certainly in accord with reason, um, and so we wanted to just make that clear. That's awesome. Um, at my church, I do these introductory introductory courses called the Start Here series, and I'll take a a bunch of things that we're kind of feeling, you know, from conversations that we're having with parish- parishioners. Like, eh, I don't know if you know, like, if people are praying on their own well, or do they understand the liturgy? And last night, I did a Start Here series on Scripture. And I was so happy to have that introduction read through um, because one of the things that we talk about is a relationship between faith and reason and how, because we have real human authors who really existed in history, we can study them using tools of, you know, the historical method, the historical critical method. We can use the great tools of scholarship, you know, even in, in light of the church's teaching, we can use these tools to really get at the humanness of these authors while also acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired all that he wanted and only what he wanted. He still made use of their freedom in communicating this. And when I read Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, that is my favorite part. As uh, So just kind of the book walks you through a synthesis of the great moments of Christ's life through all four gospels to give you the, the, the big picture of Jesus's life. And as we're going through it, um, Again, you know, not only do you introduce the scholarship well, but you introduce the two worlds of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about what are these two worlds that Jesus grew up in? Sure. The the world of the Roman Empire is something we all are aware about Augustus Caesar, you know, the Romans were in control. I don't think we really understand, at least I didn't, uh, even until somewhat recently, even until Doing the research for the book, even though I have a PhD in theology, I I didn't really understand the degree to which the claims that were made for Augustus Caesar were the same, very similar claims to the what we're the early church made about Jesus and that we today profess. Uh, It's just so it's amazing. So it's important for us to understand a little bit more about what people were thinking before Jesus came on the scene. And and they were thinking in the Roman Empire that Augustus Caesar was the great one. He was called the prince, the prince, the, really the prince. His title really wasn't emperor. It was prince. And he was the one who brought peace to the world. So the peace of Augustus was touted everywhere. And proclamations were sent out about the good news of his birth, that was celebrated every year, the good news of victories that he made. And these good news proclamations were called gospels or evangelion. So, you know, the Prince of Peace and the gospel of the Prince of Peace. Well, basically, if we don't understand that background of what people were thinking, it's hard to appreciate what a shock it would have been for them to hear that the Prince of Peace was born not in Rome, but in Bethlehem. And that the real good news that our lives are going to change at the world 
world's going to be better is the good news about his coming, his death, his resurrection. So anyway, helping us understand the pretensions of Caesar, where the Roman Empire was, you know, gives us a, an understanding of the significance of Jesus showing up in the reign of Augustus Caesar. But also, we, we don't understand the Jewish world as well as we ought to, to understand the significance of Jesus. And we don't understand that uh, the chief priests had been really corrupt for about 150 years before Jesus. We don't we, we don't understand that they were looking for lots of different kinds of figures, not just, you know, they weren't looking for a Messiah who was going to save them from their sins. We, we're used to thinking, when we see and think of Messiah, we're used to thinking all the things that Jesus is. But when they were thinking Messiah, they actually had a few different ideas. The main one, though, was a warrior king that would come and trounce the Romans, like the Maccabees drove out the pagan Greeks, or like David beat up the Philistines. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for the kingdom of God to be a, fit, a material kingdom where they'd be on top and where the Gentiles would be under their boots. And um, and that's, you know, so they had a real hard time with this Jesus as Messiah. Jesus really redefined Messiah based on um, a lot of other Old Testament scriptures that people weren't thinking about. They weren't thinking about a suffering servant as a Messiah. It's there, but they weren't seeing it. So Jesus came and he he kind of um, redefined the, the prophet like Moses that people were going to be looking for. He redefined uh, the priest that some people were looking for, a new anointed priest who would right all the wrongs of 150 years of corrupt high priests. And he, re he really changed the idea of kingship, um, redefining it based on a reinterpretation of the Old Testament that was right, because let's face it, he is the word of God incarnate. He knows what the Old Testament really was trying to say, what the Holy Spirit was saying. So anyway, um, if we get a little better idea of the Old Testament world of the Jews, uh, where they were at right at the time of Jesus, we get a better idea of the Roman world. It really helps us understand the significance and the revolutionary impact of Jesus coming. Yeah, one of the great lines from Bishop Robert Barron is, if you don't understand Israel, you can't understand Jesus. And that idea of this is God's historical self-disclosure of who he is and who he is within himself over centuries with this people and with this people, how he's interacted with them, that if we don't have that knowledge, we're going to miss out on who Jesus is. Uh, you know, I talk about um, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's this. There's a part of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Six Antitheses. You have heard it was said to men of old, but I say to you. And just to think of like what first century Jewish scribe or Pharisee or priest would dare to edit the Ten Commandments on his own authority. You've heard it was said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother... You know, if you heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, and it's like, who do you think you are, right? And and that's the attitude of the of the Jewish listeners at the end of that passage, right? Um, in Matthew chapter 7, it says that they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught not like their scribes and Pharisees, but like one having authority. And I also think it's fascinating that when you get into the history of it, not only is Caesar Augustus described as the Prince of Peace and his coinage says the son of the God or the son of God, meaning the Senate deified Julius Caesar and he's his adopted son. So he's the son of God, which is crazy that that was on Roman coinage at the time. But you also have the figure of Herod and Herod fascinates me so much. Um, listeners to the show will know about um, 
five episodes ago, we did a I did a, qu- a Christmas special about murder, madness, and mayhem that leads up to the birth of the Christ child. Why was Herod such a psychopath uh, to preserve his own throne? Well, the Hasmoneans before him, the Maccabees before him, they had started murdering each other, civil war left and right. One guy starved his mother to death, locked her in a room. Like it's real, like Game of Thrones horrific style stuff. But the the crazy thing was the conversion, and you talk about this of the Edomites by John Hyrcanus forcing the Edomites to to adopt Judaism would eventually lead to a kosher keeping Herod who got in good with the Romans and then takes over as the king of the Jews. And it's so fascinating how we have all of these what we could call anti christ's anti-messiah figures right at the birth of christ um and i think you just laid it out so masterfully especially when you have this all right buckle up let's figure out herod's descendants this is going to be crazy and it is there's like 37 herods and phillips in his in his family line it's all over the place it is so confusing (laughs) but i think what you mentioned you know people people don't realize you know honestly i have to say i didn't realize until i did additional study yeah i spent a a year. Uh, you could ask my, my poor wife. I <laughs> spent a year doing lots of additional study on top of the study uh, that, I, that I did in grad school and, and since. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize, honestly, that the Romans were in the Holy Land because the corrupt Hasmonean Jewish kings invited them in. They got two brothers got in a squabble and they were vying. They were fighting each other for who would be high priest and king. And they both appealed to Caesar. And since Caesar, well, it wasn't Caesar, it was Pompey, his his general. But since Pompey and Rome made the decision and enforced the decision, obviously they were the new power brokers. They were in charge. Um, Well, that's amazing. So, you know, it it really illustrates so well that sin brings its own punishment. You know, I mean, we invite evil on ourselves. The oppression that Jews were experiencing in the time of Pontius Pilate and and that people were chafing against, well, that was self-imposed. They invited those guys in. Uh, that was, a, you know, a, a, just a manifestation of the corruption of the high priesthood and, and the nobility of, of Israel at that time. So anyway, I mean, I think that helps a lot to understand the story. And, um, you know, in Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees and the chief priests who ultimately put him to death. Yeah, absolutely. And so... If uh, people listening to this, if you were to get this book and the video series that goes along with it, you are walking through the life of Christ and getting all of this. So you you feel almost like you're just sitting there with the Gospels open in order and you're just getting all of this historical and, and very readable, very accessible historical commentary and and putting it in its right kind of historical context not really commentary, but context as you're plowing through, it makes the scriptures come alive. But you guys went even further. You even came up with a timeline. Like I, I think probably a lot of our audience is familiar with the Bible timeline that Jeff Cavins has produced for 20-something years. But you have now a timeline of Jesus's life and the major events. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say we're very aware that you can't do a history of the public ministry of Jesus where you can We'd all love this, right? No, okay, which miracle came first? Right, Let's right. get an exact chronology of the years. And the, it's a, why can't we do that? Well, because the gospel writers weren't concerned to give that to us, and they didn't. 
<laughs> you know, so why do we know that, or why do we think that Jesus had a three-year public ministry? Well, it's in John's gospel, there are three Passovers mentioned um, in the course of the, the public ministry of Jesus. So we assume there are three. Now, he could have left some out. There could have been four. Yeah, we don't know. Um, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you look at them, um, honestly, you you kind of get the impression, if you dig deeper, this impression will go away, but you kind of have the impression that Jesus did everything in Galilee and only came to Jerusalem once, which is definitely not the case. Um because it was part of Jewish law that every man was obliged to come at least three times a year to Jerusalem for the three pilgrimage feasts. And uh, there was a great other feast in December that had been about 160 years old at the time of Jesus' birth, and that was Hanukkah, the Feast of the Rededication of the Temple. And lots of folks came to that, even though it wasn't in the law that they had to. So Jesus, we know Jesus was there at least once, because as mentioned in John's Gospel, for Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. Um, and John's Gospel shows he's back and forth to Jerusalem all the time. That's historically most probable. So, we, you know, we're dealing with the Gospels aren't the kind of blow-by-blow -blow history that many of us would expect or want. They give us less and they give us more. They give us more in that they tell us the meaning of what's going on, and that's their focus, who Jesus is, what he did. So the miracles, he worked miracles, he forgave sin, he he taught in, in such an authoritative way that actually expanded and changed in some ways the Mosaic law in a way no one would ever dare do if they weren't the Word of God incarnate. Um, he died and rose for us. Th these are the important things that the scriptures tell us. And so, you know, in, in our story, we want to give the local color and kind of give a sense of the history, um, as much as we can tell of it, of the public ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what we're really after is what the Gospels are after, and that is to bring people to a living encounter, a deeper encounter with the Lord in a way that transforms their life, the way our lives uh, the, the authors here, Jeff Cavins, Dr. Edward Sree, and myself, the way our lives were transformed and are being transformed day to day in our relationship with Jesus. So there's a real discipleship focus here, as well as uh, a rich historical and doctrinal background, you know. Um, we wanted to make it personal because that's what the Gospels are, and that's what the Catholic faith really is. Um, it's a personal relationship with Jesus and through him to the Father and to the Spirit, but also through Jesus to all the saints. All, you know, that's the, the beautiful richness of the fullness of Christ that is distinctive to the Catholic and Orthodox churches as opposed to the, our evangelical brethren who sometimes don't have that awareness and that consciousness of connection to Mary and Joseph and to the saints since the New Testament. Yeah, I, I did love that part where you were emphasizing in, in Joseph's life it wasn't just that he was the foster father kind of stuck with this kid, but he was more like an adoptive father, you know, with all the legal ramifications. He he was he raised him as his own. And the funny thing is, there's so little mentioned about the life of Joseph that one could be quick to gloss over it. I mean, I have this book of St. Thomas More where it's like 400 pages on the life of Joseph. And I'm like, where is he getting this information? <laughs> there's like what was it joseph the man closest to jesus and like all these different books that i have on stage i'm like where are they getting this and then i open up your book and the thing that i loved about it was by looking at number one nazareth where it was located you know the the things that we know about 
you know, 150 years beforehand, that it's essentially a settlement or colony town that never really grew into anything big. That all these, you know, you can get access into what the daily life of Christ must have been like under Joseph the worker, right? Joseph the father, um, by talking about this historical, the historical settings. And so much richness is there. Never once in my life did I think about Jesus's grandfather and grandmother. And now yeah. I'm like, oh, the courtyard home. They literally are building their houses into a shared courtyard. Like they're all living together. Of course, Mary is traveling with the kinfolk. And, you know, the your mother and brothers are here because they all live together all the time. Yeah, and they traveled together. Every time they went to a pilgrimage, it was a all together. Think about a big camping trip with your cousins and your uncles and your aunts. It takes a week to to get from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. You're there for at least a week because the feasts are all eight days. Sometimes you got there early. Some Jews got there a week early to purify themselves, and then it's a week back. So and you do that three times a year. I mean, just think about the kind of common life you have in town and on the road, you know, it's an amazing different kind of a life than we're used to. Um, and, and that just gives you an idea of, of, of the role that Joseph would have had and all the male relatives in Jesus family It's the boys and men prayed together every day, three times a day. Um, Jesus would not have prayed with Mary. He would have been praying with Joseph. Mary would have prayed with the other women because they had different prayers as they still do today. Orthodox Jewish women and men pray separately and they have a different prayer. Some of the prayers overlap, but some prayers men say and women don't say. So anyway, it just shows you, you know, J Jesus and Joseph, there was there was most likely no kind of school like we know in yeah. Nazareth. Um, if, if he went to the synagogue and got a little bit of extra instruction, that's great. But Joseph would have been the primary homeschooler, not Mary, because men had to read the scriptures. That was part of their responsibility. Um, and, and so Joseph's input in, in Jesus' life, from work to prayer to teaching, reading, and, and the lore of Israel, he had to teach all 613 laws to Jesus by the time he came to his 13th birthday. It was Joseph's responsibility to make sure he knew to keep the law, which was incumbent upon Jesus when he turned 13. So it's just amazing how much just knowing about Jewish life, which we just we generally don't know, if we, if we know about Jewish life— um, in the time of Jesus, it, it tells us about Joseph's relationship. And, and honestly, it tells us a lot about, wow, maybe uh, our idea of fatherhood needs to be expanded based on the oh, way yeah. Jesus and Joseph related. And and also to know that the uncles and the God and grandparents also had an incredible role. In, we don't know if, if Jesus' uh, grandparents, his step-grandparents, father on Joseph's side, if Joachim on Mary's side, if they were alive and they were living in that courtyard house. But chances are that, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of male relatives that had input on Jesus' life as well, together with Joseph. Yeah. And it, just the idea of a whole, com a whole family <laughs> there. And for us, a family means mom, dad, kids. But for them, a family was, you know, in one part of the courtyard, there's the brother and his family's house. And, you know, and there was this such an intimacy and a closeness uh, that their definition of family, Scott Hahn used to say this all the time in class, like if, if an ancient Jewish person were to have a family reunion, it's not that 50 or 100 people would show up. It's that potentially thousands could show up because your clan, your household, it was all so tightly woven in that culture, in that society. Yeah. Can I just interject real quick, Mike? 
in, in the videos, we do a, we actually had something that had to get cut just because of uh, having too much material in one of the videos. And it, it was sad that it was cut, but it was, it was over a dinner conversation. We're in Bethlehem and we're eating and there's a Bethlehem Christian there whose family has been Middle Eastern and lived in Bethlehem for a long time. And um, anyway, he uh, he's sitting there with Jeff and I, and uh, he lives today. And this is this is the way Arabs still live. Um, not not quite Jews in the Holy Land, except maybe the Orthodox, but uh, the ultra Orthodox. But but Christians in Bethlehem, for example, in the neighborhood, there are about a hundred people that are interrelated just in the immediate neighborhood of this guy. So he said his. His wedding was a little modest. There were only about 800 people at the church and about 1,000 at the reception. So that, <laughs> that gives you an idea of why at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus made 180 gallons of wine when he, when he changed that water into wine, you know? Oh, um, man. It's just a di- Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That is awesome, though. Like, that's... Th- yeah, I know. It's- I, uh, I was listening to this woman. Um, she's a, a feminist up in Canada, Camilla Paglia, and she's kind of a, a firebrand figure. But one of the things that she talks about is when we think of women in the drudgery of home life, we only think in the 20th century terms. The moment you really go outside, as long as you can get older than the Industrial Revolution, you almost have a static model of womanhood. Women were never alone in the home. There were always sisters and mothers, mother-in-laws, you know, grandparents, whatever. They were. It wasn't just one woman alone with the kids all day waiting for the husband to get home from work. They all worked at the house, more or less, and they were surrounded by all of these people every day. Like family feasts or family dinners were, I mean, they were, I mean, it was one guy who described uh, living in rural um Rural Oklahoma in the the teens, his grandparents in the nineteen teens, like it would take to peel the potatoes would take three women five hours, you know, to feed everyone, and it was so much production went into these things, um, so much effort that these women were never alone, and so kind of the modern solution of feminism is a response to a very modern problem: women who are left alone all day with the kids. The kids, it's their responsibility to take care of all the kids. The husband just go go away, get a paycheck, and come home. And then you see this view of eight hundred people at the mass and or at the wedding, and and a thousand at the reception. It does that changes your view of of what should family look like. Indeed, indeed, and it just really helps us understand the context of all the parables yeah. and all, all that happened in Jesus' public ministry. And we get a little bit more in touch with way life was then. So, you know, this series is not a history lesson, but we want to have, we we filmed it in the Holy Land because we really wanted people to feel a a very visceral connection, you know, uh, to Jesus and to his humanity, Uh, as well as, you know, we talk, of course, about the, the fact that he is God, he is the word made flesh, but we wanted people to touch and experience more of the humanity of Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the apostles. And I think we we help we achieve that by being in the Holy Land and and walking in those places and talking to those people as part of this series. Yeah, you describe this as a virtual pilgrimage of the Holy Land. I have never been. My pastor goes with Jeff Cavins every January, goes out there for two or three weeks or however long they do it, and he comes back just full of stories, full of amazing things. I have longed to go, uh, but I can never go. Um, <laughs> right now, right now with my life as it is, um, tell us like, what, where are you filming these 
So it's not just you. It's you and Jeff Cavins and Dr. Edward Shree. Where, where are you guys going in the Holy Land? Well, first of all, Dr. Shree couldn't make it over there to the uh, Holy Land with us. So we had conversations about what we were going to do in each episode, sitting around a table and enjoying fellowship and enjoying some great Middle Eastern food. Um, and <laughs> then awesome. that's the way every episode starts. And we kind of, um, you know, Dr. Sri gets a lot of um, input in, in those conversations since he's not able to be with us on the trip. And then gotcha. um, the rest of the episode is Jeff and I walking through the Holy Land and mainly conversing with each other. There's a few um, spots where I'm talking, but most of the time it's it's the two of us conversing where you're overhearing a conversation, you're participating in a conversation. So the teaching is kind of woven through. The study is, is conversational. Um, but we start... Uh, in Caesarea, because we wanted to describe the Roman world, that was the capital of 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 the the the, the Roman governor lived in Caesarea. That was a Roman town built by Herod. So we have some awesome shots of that, the ruins of that town, and we talk about the Roman Empire there. Then we go to Jerusalem and talk about the, the Holy Land and Jewish life, the Jewish world, uh, in front of this incredible model, a large scale model that covers a quarter acre of Jerusalem shortly after the time of Jesus, so you can get a, a more visual idea of the temple and uh, where things were and, and all that. So, um, you know, and, and then we, we go to the actual ruins of the temple as well. So you're actually seeing the steps of the temple that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph walked up on, where Jesus sat and taught. You're actually seeing those. Uh, we're, we're right there. So, um, and then we go all over the country. Mount Carmel, we're, we're up in Galilee, all around the Sea of Galilee. We're in Jerusalem um, at, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where that covers Golgotha and the, the tomb out of which Jesus rose. So, you know, we're we're in all the key spots in the Holy Land as we're talking about these places and talking about these things. Uh, you really get an idea what the desert looks like, uh, which is not what we typically picture as a desert. And it, uh, when you see the way the desert looks and you see where John baptized, uh, you get a much better idea of of the meaning and the, uh, of the words, make straight the way of the Lord. Let every valley be filled in. Let every mountain be made low. Uh, it's a, just a wild, craggy, rough place. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, see, it's stuff like that that people are going to they're going to miss out if you don't have those beautiful and kind of stunning visuals. And there's one group of people that I just found out um, literally 20 minutes before me and you hopped on uh, Skype here and started uh, talking. Listeners of the show know that I also do a prison ministry. Um, there's a wonderful organization called Colby Prison uh, Retreat Ministries. And I partnered, you know, I did an event. Um, it was amazing, but it led me to invest myself in this one prison unit uh, here in Texas. And uh, the guy just came in, the chaplain that helped get this up and running, uh, good old Jerry. And he popped in and he said, hey, I think this is the study that we're going to do next for the men in white um, in the in the prison next in the coming weeks. We we now have uh, uh, the chapel to ourselves. We've rearranged a schedule so we can play video. And sometimes we can play video. You got to play it really loud because we share the space with the Buddhists and the uh, the Jewish group. But now we're going to have it. We moved it to a different time. And so we can use the projector screen and shut off all the lights and turn up the, the, the audio. And so they can now immerse themselves in a pilgrimage that they may probably never take themselves, at least most of them. Um, but they can now see this because of the work that you've done. And I just think that's so incredible. Bringing the Holy Land, bringing uh, the humanity of Christ home. I love it. 
that makes my day. <laughs> really yeah. thinking about those guys, uh, the the inmates being able to to watch the series um, and and to take the study. And you know, I just want to throw this out too, Mike. The the study itself is multifaceted and there's multiple components to it. And I just want to say that people can feel free to just, for example, read the book or um, to, to get the DVDs and, and watch the videos um, and just watch them. And so each component will stand on its own. But the best way, there's a study guide that is meant for those who want to take a, the serious study approach. And you can do that with one person. I, honestly, you can do it alone. I mean, you, you can go through this and do it alone. It's best when you actually discuss the, the material. So when you go through the study guide, it, it sets you up to have a discussion with either just your spouse or just a friend or with a study group at the parish or in any place, in the prison. Um, but the study guide really has more stuff in it that's not in the book and that's not in exactly the videos. You know, for example, we have in the study guide a diagram of a courtyard house which is almost certainly Peter's house in Capernaum, where Jesus stayed. Now, the reason we know that we, we have that diagram is because this house in the, the second half of the first century was one of the rooms was made into a prayer space. We can tell that because it was plastered. It stopped having household utensils in it. And it became a pilgrimage spot because there's graffiti that still exists in the crumbled plaster. You can reconstruct, you can find the graffiti and archaeologists have found it, that people came, pilgrims came, and in different languages were praising Jesus and honoring Peter. So this is this wow. is the, the the structure inside, you know, in this courtyard house, there's one particular two-room section where either Jesus stayed as his guest house or Peter lived with Jesus uh, next in the next room uh, or in another, you know, but, but we know that that was, it's probably the earliest Christian worship spot in, in existence. Um, and it was uh, in the fourth century, a larger house church was made over it. And in the fifth century, the Byzantines built an octagonal church over it. But to this day in Capernaum, you can visit the spot, but the reconstruction, it shows you what it looks like in the first century based on all the doorposts that were found and the walls and all that stuff. So it's it's pretty amazing. And, and scripture tells us that it's the house of Simon. His mother-in-law lived there and Andrew lived there. So you got two families, at least, of, of two brothers and a mother-in-law, you know, so it gives you an idea of how they lived. Um, uh, and so I, the diagram of that actual house based on archaeology is, is put in the study guide. Plus, there's all sorts of great charts, like uh, all the titles of Jesus that appear in the New Testament where they appear in, in alphabetical order, you know, and, and uh, with scripture references, um, there's that. a, you know, there's a list of all the parables, what gospels they're in, um, and all the miracles and what gospels they're in, you know, and that, that kind of chart stuff is something Catholics generally, these kinds of lists haven't really been exposed to. So what a great resource that you can refer to for, to the rest of your life. You have it, you know, you've done the study, you have it in your, um, in, in your library and your bookcase, you can pull it out anytime you have a question and, and looks really great stuff up like this. Oh, that is awesome. And the, you do not just lead a virtual pilgrimage. You also take people uh, to the Holy Land. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, DrItaly.com um, real pilgrimages that you can lead? Sure. Well, it's been 20 years that I've been going to the Holy Land, and I haven't been quite as many times as Jeff Cavins. I've been 30 times. He's been about 50. 
but I'm going to try to catch up to him now. <laughs> but anyway, I, I lead, uh, I, I, I'm the director of the pilgrimage and we kind of keep it a little smaller than many of the other pilgrimages led by some Catholic apologists and theologians and Bible teachers, you know, so that um, I, I can actually do uh, most of the commentary and everyone hear that. Um, I have a local guide that assists me who's really a saintly man. And um, he he is so committed to Jesus. He's so in love with the Lord. He had an adult conversion, even though his family has been Catholic for centuries and they've lived in the Holy Land for centuries. He really had a personal encounter with Christ that had led to a changed career. He left finance and banking as an MBA, and he became a tour guide because he just didn't want to do anything else but tell people about Jesus Christ. So anyway, he's an awesome asset. Um, and uh, it, we we pray our way through the Holy Land. We laugh and we have great food and we have some great cultural experiences and we learn a lot of theology and history. But we, you know, we really encounter the Lord, um, and so it's a life changing experience. Uh, uh, it's eleven days, and we do it just generally every spring. So we still have some room this year. You can go to DrItaly.com if you'd like to hop on. We have a few seats available, and then we're going to do it again in 2021, right after Easter. So we're singing Alleluia in the tomb in the Easter season, which is amazing. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, yeah, it, the Holy Land is really a bloom. You know, even the desert has flowers in April and early May. So it's just a beautiful time to be there. Oh, that is checking all the boxes right there, folks. Checking all the boxes. Now, you're a professor at Catholic Distance University. What courses um, and subject matters do you teach there? Well, Mike, I teach two courses right now. One is fundamental theology. And what is that all about? It's about what are the ground rules for theology? How do we know that we know? Um, you know, how, what role does reason play in understanding God? How about faith? What is faith? Uh, and how is it different from just blindness, you know, taking a leap in the dark? But we talk about Scripture. How is Scripture inspired? How is it inerrant? How does that jive with what we learned about science, uh, with evolution and the age of the earth? Um, and how about tradition? Catholics believe that tradition is an important complement to Scripture. Why is that? What does it really consist of? Uh, how is it authoritative? And then the magisterium. So these are all the ground rules, you know, the authority by which we know what we know. The things that really separate Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox a little bit um, are, are some of these kind of issues. So um, anyway, we we, we probe those issues, and that's that's like a second-level course. But I do the intro course. Everybody who wants to th think about doing a master's at Catholic Distance University gets a sweep, a survey of the history of Catholic doctrine from the fathers all the way through to Pope Francis. And that is an amazing journey. We, we hit controversial topics like, like the Reformation and what really went on there. Why did it go on? And why did the church rupture? The Orthodox Catholic schism— um, and then in the early church, the fathers of the church, which is kind of a specialty of mine, as you know, I, I wrote a book called When the Church Was Young, Voices of the Early Fathers. That's a textbook for the first part of the course. And we come right up to Vatican II and uh, the controversy around Vatican II. Did it change tradition? Did it recover tradition? Well, why do we have so many problems now? Uh, did Vatican II cause those problems? So we, we confront those kinds of issues. And we, we actually read primary texts. Mike, so many so few people, they read blogs and listen to people on television, but they, they don't actually ever read a lot of times primary texts from the fathers, from Thomas Aquinas, from Vatican II, from Pope Francis. Uh, um, most people have strong opinions about Pope Francis, but very few people have ever read any substantial part of his writing and teaching. So 
we, we give people the opportunity to do that in, in this course. It's called Catholic Theological Tradition. And again, that's at Catholic Distance University. That is awesome. Well, Dr. Italy, thank you so much for taking the time out to describe this new study. Again, it's called Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life. It's a virtual pilgrimage with uh, Jeff Cavins, Dr. Edward Shree, and yourself talking about and taking people on a tour of the Holy Land to give us the life of Christ so that not just to give us information, but to really give us transformation. And that's what we want. I'm sure the men in white out here in uh, Texas are going to be super excited. Um, we actually, uh, I just remember this, the the guys that Jeff visited when he came down to our church, he visited the administrative segregation wing, which is what most people would call solitary confinement. He visited those guys. Some of those are serving, you know, consecutive life sentences and all this stuff. For the first time ever, we were given permission under very strict <laughs> circumstances to show uh, a video curriculum to these men. And uh, and Jerry is, he, you know, we were trying to figure out which one to show. And uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to do, Jerry wants to do um, this one first and then followed up with Unlocking the Mysteries of the Bible just as a foundation, right? Because those men know who Jesus is. Many of them are, um, you know, uh, pretty pretty hardcore killers, but they were born or raised in Christian or Catholic homes originally. And uh, so this will unfold the life and mystery of Christ. I couldn't think of a better program to start. Thank you so much for taking your time. Is there anything else you want to, any closing words you want to say to to the, the audience of every niche show, Bell? Well, I'll just in, encourage everybody to make sure you see the trailer um, you can go to ascensionpress.com and actually see a full free session, uh, our session in Bethlehem, Mount Carmel, and Nazareth, talking about the early life of Jesus. So you can see that for free, get an idea of, of the uh, the series. So uh, I would encourage people to do that, um, as well as go to ascensionpress.com to get the, the book um, and do the whole study. And, it, you know, I think it, it'd be a blessing for, for anybody, um, anybody and everybody. And I'm so excited that guys... In, they're in prison, even the guys in solitary confinement yep. will have the opportunity to experience this. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So once again, folks, you can check this out at ascensionpress.com, but also head over to dritaly.com and you can learn more about his pilgrimages and pray your way. Don't just be a tourist, be a pilgrim, pray your way through the Holy Land. Thank you very much, Dr. Marcellino. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure, Mike. All right. God bless. God bless you.